In other words, the contending arguments about the practical effects of abortion are something of a sideshow. Very few people support legal abortions simply because they think it reduces crime. Very few people who support abortion would change their minds if they came to believe that it does not reduce crime. The same principle applies to the other side. Throughout history, whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Center for Bioethical Reform. The Center for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Center for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to artifacts. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. We are so thankful and humbled that you have tuned in once again. My name's Peter. I'm the host of the program, and with me again is my good friend, my colleague, and my co-host, Cameron Coetze. Hello, sir. Hey, Peter. Good to be back. And I, um, as always, am interested in this upcoming episode, but for a slightly different reason. So we today we are talking about the book Freakonomics, written by Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner. Um... And this might be a little bit more of a niche topic for a lot of people, but it hits close to home for me because this was actually the first argument I ever heard in favor of abortion uh, when I was in grade 10. So a little bit of context. Um, as a grade 10 student attending a private school, it seemed like public school teachers went on strike every other year. And so during one of these strikes um, in which the, the public school teachers were on strike, private schools were still in session, we got way ahead and we just had many of our classes just talking about whatever, or sometimes we played Trivial Pursuit or, or just games because all of the exams kept getting pushed further and further back. We had already covered all the course content, that kind of thing. And this one day my math teacher came in, I was in grade 10, like I said, um, and he wasn't pro-life. Um, it was a, a private Catholic school. He was not Catholic. He was not pro-life. And he presented the first ever pro-abortion argument drawn from Freakonomics. And I'm really excited to dive into it today because at the time, I had no idea how to respond. At the time, my only rebuttal was, but sir, it's a baby. And I'm really excited whether you've been in a similar spot, whether you've ever read the book Freakonomics. Um, I think it's an interesting book, but I certainly don't think it needs to go on to the top of anybody's reading list. Interesting book. But yeah, it, it comes up on university campuses and on street corners occasionally. But I think that it, it's a, an interesting argument to be able to respond to. And it just kind of hits close to home for me because of my, my um breaking into the pro-life movement with this argument presented to me in grade 10. So a lot's changed since then, but I, I'm excited to dive into it today, Peter. Likewise, yeah. For those of you who are listening, what we're going to do, we're going to talk about uh, a brief history of this argument. We're going to provide a little bit of commentary. But one of the things we want to do, which is the same uh, that we want to do on every episode, is give you some tools and some some practical tips that you can use in conversation with people. What we want to do is share how to have these good conversations. And so the topic 
uh, today really is abortion reduces the crime, the crime rate. That's the claim. Abortion reduces the crime rate. And proponents of this arg- argument would argue that the availability of abortion, the fact that abortion is legal, has resulted in fewer births of children at the highest highest risk of committing a crime. Now, we know that there are, are some pro-abortion people who do listen to this, but I do have a just a quick note for pro-lifers. When we first hear an argument like this, abortion reduces the crime rate, we might be thinking this is a ridiculous argument. It's clear that this you know, cannot be, and, and we know why that is, because we recognize the humanity of the preborn children. But we want to engage the, the person who is pro-abortion. And one thing that we've highlighted before is that it won't do to, to just proclaim that their arguments are stupid, they're dumb, we're not going to listen to them, and, and it won't do for us to go out and try to completely destroy their argument. Our goal is to, to reach the person. And so while destroying someone's argument might be a great YouTube title uh, and, and a great way to get clicks on YouTube and people to listen to you on that platform, it is an awful way if we're trying to work to convince people that abortion is an injustice or trying to convince them that the reasoning that they're using and, and the argument that they're bringing forward is not one that could be used to justify abortion. So I just want to throw that out there uh, as kind of a framework and an attitude that we want to bring into every conversation and in, into every thoughtful dialogue on the topic of abortion. I, I guess not just abortion, any other controversial or difficult topic as well. We want to come with grace and we want to come in a way where we understand the other person's argument uh, and, and know how to refute it logically, uh, but also in love. So Cam, as we as we kick things off, would you like to tackle a little bit of the the history of this argument, where it came from, um, and how it became popularized? Yeah, so a lot of people might only think of this as being an argument put forth by the the authors that I mentioned, Stephen Levitt um, and Stephen Dubner, um, in the book, uh, book Freakonomics that came out in 2005. It was a New York Times bestseller because it played into exactly everything the media wanted to hear. Um, but it, in a lot of ways, the argument surfaced a lot longer, a long time before that. And, and in a lot of ways, it traced back to a 1966 study that was carried by the Rockefeller Commission in 1972 um, in this feature article called Population in the American Future, where they this 1966 study um, found apparently that children born to women who had been den- denied an abortion, quote, turned out to have been registered more often with psychiatric services, engaged in more antisocial and criminal behavior, and um, and have been more dependent on public assistance, end quote. Um, and, and in particular, so that, that study kind of looked at children from just under 200 women who were denied abortions between 1939 and 1941, uh, fairly small um, look in there, but that, that was in Sweden. And so the Rockefeller um, Commission picked this up and tried to project some of this into America. And that's where this this idea first started like festering in the minds of Americans. But it really didn't take up a whole lot of mental real estate until, as I mentioned, Stephen Levitt um, published a paper. I, I believe it was either in 1999 or 2001. He worked with another. So he's a professor at the University of Chicago. He worked with another Yale professor who argued, um, citing this, uh, the 1966 study, as well as some other data, that children who were unwanted or whose parents could not support them in the lifestyle that they had wanted to, they're likelier to become criminals. And Levitt went on to argue that 
it's better to kill people before they become criminals than to wait for them to commit a crime. Um, something that I know this this dates me, but I remember when I first got involved in pro-life apologetics in, in a very formal way when I was in university in the late 2000s, early 2010s, um, I, I often talked about a movie called The Minority Report. Peter, I don't know if you're familiar with The Minority Report. Um, Tom Cruise in his heyday, this idea of punishing criminals before they'd ever committed the crime, um, things like this. But that, that's a little bit of the background on it. But this book um, called Freakonomics, each chapter kind of tries to take an edgy look at different social questions. And chapter four dives into the the issue of abortion, begging the question, where have all the criminals gone? And and the two of them, Levitt and Dubner, um, try to walk through a few different explanations as to why the crime rate or the violent crime rate in particular in America would have decreased. They also try to spice things up by having the intro about how an absolutely barbaric communist government in Romania, um, who also happened to make abortion illegal, somehow provided a, a, a counterpoint or a similar point. Um, I'm not really going to get into how dissimilar Romania under communist rule is than America under um, democratic rule. But uh, interesting that they try to flavor the debate with that to start out. But they they identify eight different popular explanations that different economists and different social scientists tried to go through and they try to walk through each of them and i'll peter i'll, I'll share the eight of them and then maybe we can we can touch on um, a, a few other thoughts that spring from the article but the eight things that they try to walk through and show that some of them do have impacts on the violent crime rate and some of them don't one innovative police strategies two increased reliance on prisons three changes in crack cocaine and other drugs on the market four, an aging population, five, tougher gun control laws, six, a stronger economy, seven, more police officers, just sheer volume of them, and eight, um, all others, including capital punishment, concealed weapon laws, gun buybacks, the whole shebang, like uh, a kind of plethora of, of things that all went into it. And so they present these eight and they try to walk through them somewhat systematically um, to demonstrate that some of them had absolutely no bearing. They suggest that others had greater bearing than others. And then they kind of launch into this final thesis that abortion um, decreases the crime rate. So yeah, that, that's a, a little bit of the background there. Yeah, that's right, Cam. For, for them, abortion hadn't really been talked about when analyzing the crime rate. But uh, as they were looking at the, the cultural landscape and the social landscape and a bit of the history of the 80s and 90s, uh, they really took into consideration the fact that Roe versus Wade had happened. There was a, a huge uh, increase in the discussion on the topic of abortion. Abortion became legal, uh, very notably, I guess, in, in Washington, New York and California, where it became very legal very quickly and so they 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 recognized that this ought to be part of the conversation and as they looked at it they concluded that you know this not just was to be part of the conversation but was to be a significant part of the conversation and they you know one of the things they argued for was that abortions became most common once they were legal among negligent working class women women who statistically speaking would have been particularly likely to give children who would have gone on to commit crimes once they grew up and were old enough. And so the conclusion that they came to was that legalized abortion undoubtedly had a dramatic effect on the crime rate. States with higher abortion rates had a higher crime rate. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, let me repeat that. States 
with higher abortion rates had higher drops in crime. Uh, my apologies. And states uh, on the flip side of that, that legalized abortion earlier, saw the crime rate start to drop before any other states. And so people argue that uh, regardless of what one thinks about the morality of abortions, the declining crime rate was an unambiguous, unintended benefit of the United States Supreme Court's decision in Roe versus Wade. Now, Cam, there's a there's a lot we can discuss when we when we think about that. But what would some of the first thoughts be that come to your mind when you read through this chapter or when you think about the arguments presented? I mean, the the first and most obvious ones that that should jump into the minds of all pro-lifers are simply um, that we're not equating abortion as a crime against a human, um, especially not a violent crime. This is something that has to be in the back of our minds. And and the, the authors try to give a little bit of lip service to this um, suggestion towards the end, saying, obviously, if you value a pre-born human's life equal to a born human's life, then um, this is nonsensical, especially when you factor in the absurd number of abortions that have been performed in America since the legalization of Roe v. Wade, when you consider there's been, what, around 40 million abortions, I think, is, is an approximate um, number that, that's often thrown around for number of abortions. Um, the number of violent crimes is has not been decreased by anywhere near that amount. So I think that's the first factor that has to come to mind. But there's a bunch of other ones that come to mind as well, in large part. And, and that quote that, that you read, Peter, at the very beginning as the intro of this um, episode, it comes from a book called The Party of Death, um, written by Ramesh Ponaru. I, I hope I pronounced that name right. Um, Ramesh Ponaru. And in, in several chapters, he actually tears apart a lot of the evidence that the authors of Freakonomics try to rely upon stating that um, while, yes, the crime rate in these um, locations in which had had higher crime um, and, and it dropped significantly because of a higher abortion rate, the crimes um, that, were, that were committed by their target demographic actually went up. And what I mean by that is that, so they cite four areas as part of their case study, um, New York, California, um, Alaska and Hawaii as four um, states that legalized abortion earlier, and they they make the case in Freakonomics that um, the violent crime rates decreased in those states um, proportionately earlier than to the than in the states that um, legalized it later, and and this sounded like a compelling argument as to why um, why this was extra good data suggesting that abortion was so related. And yet, um, as um, Ponaru points out in Party of Death, that these states that they relied upon so heavily for this violent crime data, where the violent crime decreased was actually in a much older generation that was not impacted in any way by the Roe v. Wade decision. But rather, there is an increase in violent crime among the demographic that would have been impacted by an increased abortion rate um, stemming from the Roe v. Wade decision. So there's a very, very good case to call into question whether or not the data is even accurate. But Peter, I, I don't think that's the area that we want to wade into too much. I don't think that this comes down to whether or not abortion does correlate to a lower crime rate because it doesn't actually matter. Even if the data is correct, even if by increasing the abortion rate, we decrease the crime rate, 
we can ask the question that my my classmate way back in grade 10 asked my professor right off the hop when when i was sputtering to try to but sir it's a baby yes cam i understand that it's a baby but don't you value the lives of the victims of crime the rebuttal that my my classmate gave and and we'll go through a few different ways that we can do it um sir could we agree that we want to decrease the repeat offender rate we don't want people committing multiple crimes do we well no obviously not okay well should we just kill everybody after they commit the first crime then because that is a surefire way to make sure that nobody commits two crimes if you just kill everybody after the first crime. Um, and, and so that's a, a few things that run through my mind. Um, but I know there's a few other Peter, um, uh, th- few others, Peter, that, that you've thought of as well. Yeah, that's right. And I, I, you touched on it really well. There, there are a lot of ways to look at this. We could have the correlation causation discussion and, you know, try to, to, to figure out whether, you know, what, were there a lot of things that went into the, uh, the rise in crime or was it just abortion or how we could, how we could go about that. But I really like what you said that at the end of the day on this particular discussion, that's not it, that doesn't really matter. And so when I was thinking about this, there were two things that came to my mind. The, the first is a, a point on common ground. Uh, one of the things that they're saying implicitly is that, you know, it, it's not ideal for women to be pregnant in difficult financial circumstances and difficult life circumstances. And, you know, it would be far more ideal if everyone could meet the needs of themselves and their children. And so that's something that we as pro-lifers can recognize. And I think that that we as as Christians in, in Christian communities and churches and pro-life communities across this nation, you know, we, we have been doing a lot. I, I know there are stats on that. I think about the conversation we had with Laura Clausen and the work that she's doing. Uh, it, it's impossible for her to create a registry of baby gifts and not have it filled within the first 10 minutes of it being live. Um, because of the support that people want to show. And so a lot has been done, but I think it's important for us to recognize that when there are women and children in, in vulnerable situations, and you know, if there are men in vulnerable situations, we can help them as well. Um, but specifically for this, this topic of abortion, um, part of the, the mandate of the Christian church is to, to help those who are vulnerable. So, um, you know, we can agree that there are people who are, are perhaps poor, perhaps they're in a mentally ill state where they're not really able mentally to take care of children. And so we ought to look for those opportunities to help them and support them in the ways that we can. But like you touched on, Cam, there is one vital point missing in the entirety of this chapter. Uh, and it's something that, like I mentioned earlier, pro-lifers would be able to point out right away. Now, while legalizing abortion might, in fact, lower other crimes, the chapter fails to take into consideration the fact that abortion itself is a crime. And so for this argument to be a legitimate argument, it first must contend with the fact that abortion ends the life of a preborn child. Uh, it first has to make the case um, for it to be legitimate that abortion doesn't you know, tear them apart and suction them to death, which is something uh, that, as we've talked about in the past and we'll touch on briefly in a moment, uh, it, it does, in fact, do. And so, Cam, that, that's something we recognize. And so there's a bridge we need to build. We're in a conversation with someone. We recognize the humanity of the preborn children. We've seen photos and videos of what abortion does to these young image bearers, these young children, uh, these young little boys or girls. But the person we're talking to doesn't recognize that. And they're looking to the crime rate. They're looking to the situation of the women uh, and the, the the potential future that the children might have in a lifestyle of crime. 
And so when we're in conversations with someone about abortion, where can we start and how can we navigate our way through this dialogue? Yeah. Um, and, and this is a theme that for those of you who are tuning in to, uh, this isn't your first episode. This, this is a theme that we talk about very often, Peter, you and I, this, this idea of bridging the gap, starting with common ground. Uh, and, and you laid it out there very well, that when somebody brings this up on the street um, about abortion decreasing the crime rate, there, there, I mean, there's lots of different areas that we can find common ground in. One, probably my go-to line would be, you know what, you and I agree that there are a ton of parents living in difficult circumstances and ton of parents who are, are faced with challenging pregnancies. And we don't want that to happen. Not, not only is that inconvenient and less than ideal, whatever, like we straight up don't want that to happen. That's something that we agree with. And not only that, but we can also agree that we don't want violent crime happening in our society. And so we recognize a couple of different problems. We, we, bridge that gap. We find that common ground. Yes, there are problems. We have a problem with violent crime and we have a problem with mothers and fathers um, encountering challenging pregnancies, 100%. So, so help us out for a second, Cam. How would you say that on the streets? Give us like a, a quote verbatim. Uh, someone brings us up. What is the, the, the precise thing that you would respond to? Uh, in in response to this argument. Yeah. You know what, Peter? You and I agree that that mothers are faced with incredibly challenging pregnancies all the time, and we need to help them. And not only that, we need to do more to decrease the violent crime rate. Boom. Bookends on my common ground. I, I'm going to flow naturally into the analogy that I'm, uh, maybe I'll mention that right away, and we can dissect that, Peter, if that's cool. Yeah, for sure. So, so I'm going to flow directly from that you and I agree that parents are faced with incredibly challenging pregnancies um, all the time. We need to help them in these pregnancies. We can also agree that we want to decrease the violent crime rate. Absolutely. Imagine that we identified a demographic of people, whether they were males, whether they were of a particular ethnicity or race or religion, who had a higher tendency towards violent crime. Would we ever suggest that we kill that demographic of people so as to decrease the crime rate. If we're not willing to kill born humans because they might have a higher likelihood um, of committing a crime simply based off of their demographic, why are we willing to kill preborn children for the same reason? And so the background on that that I'm sure that we can dive into is that, that sure, you can find a lot of different factors that correlate to an increased crime rate. There, there's a a significantly higher number of men who commit violent crimes than women. Does that mean that we kill all the guys? Um, I'm, I'm sure that some of the people who troll through our, our Instagram feed would um, consider that as an option. However, is, is that viable? If we found a particular um, socioeconomic um, demographic, I, um, as a quick aside, I'm a huge fan of these British comedians. I know they have some unwholesome content, but they've got a really funny sketch um, called Should We Kill the Dwarves, where Mitchell and Webb, these two British comedians, uh, the one guy is posing to be a, a big um, economist and, and trying to lead things for economic benefit. And he keeps pushing this woman to run a test on whether or not things would improve if they just killed all the dwarves. Terrible thing. And, and she's pushing back. It's like, no, it doesn't matter if things would improve if we killed all the dwarves. We're not going to do that. It's a really funny sketch. But at the end of the day, that's a question we have to ask. Okay, if I, if I could demonstrate that people of a particular, particular ethnicity 
or people who have a particular fondness of a sport or religion or whatever, we're more likely to commit crimes than others. Can we kill people because of the demographic they fit into? This doesn't go into potential good versus potential evil. This goes into whether or not innocent human beings can be killed to solve um, a future problem, ultimately. Yeah, I, I like what you did there, Cam. And, and that's a, a common tactic that we use as that we call trotting out the toddler. And so what you did is you looked for an example of ending the life of someone else to lower the crime rate that you knew the person in front of you would agree with. And then you, you brought forward that example and then tied that into abortion to say, I'm going to repeat the question you asked if we shouldn't be allowed to end the life of a born child because or a born human being because it might decrease the crime rate. Then why should we be allowed to end the life of a preborn human being because they might potentially because that abortion might attend, potentially re reduce the crime rate 20 years from now. Now, Cam, one of the, the common responses that we get to that is, but it's different. And I know we've talked about this before. Um, but they would say something along the lines of, but it's different, they're not human, or they're not the same. And when people bring that up, it, we often recognize that the point of disagreement that we have is not actually with the crime rate, but the, the real point of disagreement is on whether we actually think the preborn are human. So if you could, um, I don't know if you wanted to say anything else on, on the common ground analogy question, but if not, if you could get into... Let's make the case for their humanity briefly. We've talked about it before. Episode two is a really good example. And then we've done it sporadically throughout the time we've been running this podcast. But but help us out. How do we make the case for the humanity of the preborn children once they say, OK, you know, I, I see your argument, but the preborn are different. Yeah. And, and that point ties back into, again, that intro quote that you had that that nobody actually supports abortion because of the crime, right? This is something that, that's thrown out extraneously. Um, how do we demonstrate the humanity? This is something, again, Peter, that you and I have talked about. We, we have, th there's lots of different ways with the exact wording. What I would say is walking through our four question human rights argument to demonstrate the humanity of the preborn. So what I would say, and I quote, you can quote me, saying it. I'm, I'm saying it already, so I don't know if I need the quotation marks. But here's what I would say, actually. Do you agree that all humans should get human rights? Yeah. Okay, could we agree that if something is growing, even from one cell to two cell to four cell, it must be alive? Yeah. Okay, and if that living organism has human parents, couldn't we agree that he or she must be a living member of the human species? Yeah. So if we agree that all humans should get human rights, wouldn't that make abortion a human rights violation? That's how I would walk through the humanity of the preborn with those, especially those two middle questions. If something is growing, isn't it alive? And if that living organism has human parents, isn't he or she a living human? I think that demonstrates the humanity very well, though. You're certainly also welcome to do um, a couple of other things. You can pull out your handy dandy smartphone and Google, when does human life begin? And there's a ton of different academic articles, but also universities that um, their biology textbooks are just printed out there. You can go back to your grade nine science class and remember that human life begins at fertilization. You can trace your own life back. You can say, okay, look at me. I'm a, a 31 year old guy. Um, in spite of all the gray hair, I'm 31. And um, uh, several years, I used to be able to say 10 years ago, but, but just over 10 years ago, I used to be a teenager. And before that, I was an adolescent. Before that, I was a toddler. Before that, I was an infant. I can trace my life back. The same human being, I can trace my life back 
But we also know that I didn't pop into existence as an infant and then get carried by a stork to my parents' front door. That human, me, I can trace my life back to being a fetus inside my mother's womb. And I can trace my life back to earlier as a human embryo, all the way back to a human zygote, a one cell human being, because of my unique genetic code, my independent behavior, integrating um, nutrients from the environment around me into my own body, I can trace my life back to that moment and no further, right? Because a, a sperm cell has um, the male's um, genetic code and the egg cell has the, the um, woman's genetic code. The zygote has a unique genetic code. And so you were never an egg. You were never a sperm. Your life began at the moment of fertilization. And, and so you can trace that back very methodically. You can rely on what the experts say or my favorite is just relying on those central two questions of the human rights argument. If something's growing, isn't it alive? And if that living organism has human parents, isn't he or she a living human? That's great. I, I want to highlight two things when it comes to that. The, the use of common ground analogy question, recognizing the difficulty that they are presenting, and then asking those challenging questions based on the analogies of trotting out the toddler and comparing the born children to preborn children is designed so that we can get to that fundamental part of the conversation, which is who are they, the preborn children? Are they human or are they not? Because if they're human, no justification for abortion can be adequate. But if they're not human, then no justification for abortion is necessary. I don't need a justification to get my kidneys uh, operated on or removed or anything like that in terms of, you know, they're a human being or they're not a human being. But the, th the, the point is very, very different when it comes to preborn children. The second thing I want to say, Cam, as I was thinking about the the analogy of you just talking about yourself, you are a teenager and so on, what you're doing is asking really, really, really simple questions that everyone can agree with. Everyone, everyone believes that a woman doesn't wake up nine months pregnant one day, all surprised that she's nine months pregnant, ready to give birth, um, right? And we recognize that 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 process begins at fertilization when we're challenged by a few simple questions. And so uh, really, really good. I, I really like that. And I do want to encourage people to try to, to memorize the human rights argument, try to, to get into the framework of thinking through common ground and creating analogies and asking challenging questions. We do have a, a segment on our YouTube. There's only one video there right now, but uh, at this time of recording, uh, it's an apologetics playlist. And we do have a short video on there that highlights the human rights argument so that you can reference that whenever you want. Uh, for the rest though, uh, we've 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 managed to to make our way through the content that we wanted to make our way through, and we did it in record time. Uh, so do let us know if 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 this you know thirty minute episode is good for you, or if you prefer the hour long ones. Um, but but this was a uh, an apologetic focused episode that we wanted to keep a little bit shorter. So, but do remember common ground analogy question in conversations. Do remember that what we want to do is talk about the humanity of preborn children. Cam, do you have anything else to add before I jump into the conclusion? No, sir. I think you nailed it. Um, definitely worth picking up that book, The Party of Death by Ramesh um, Ponaru. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, but no, I, I think you covered it. This is a, we need to remember to simplify, simplify our conversations. And so hopefully we simplify things enough um, in this episode because we, as much as it's easy for Peter and I to just ramble and ramble, um, this is actually very different than how our conversations go on the street. Most of our conversations are less than five minutes. Um, 
and not just because people storm off, um, but rather because that's generally how long it takes for us to communicate the pro-life worldview in a very compelling way. So the simpler we're able to communicate it, the better. We like to give a little bit of context so that you know why you're communicating that simple message. Um, but yeah, please, please, please use that simple pro-life um, method of bridging the gap with common ground knowledge question. The human rights argument can't speak highly enough of that. And then using the content from the other pres um, episodes as well for the other questions which may come up. That's right. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Before you tune out, uh, let me just direct your attention to uh, to our Patreon page. You can be a supporter of the Pro-Life Guys and make this content possible. And let me just highlight one of the reasons why this content is important. We, we firmly believe. I was listening and watching some YouTube videos from other pro -life, another Pro-Life apologi apologist the other day. And I was listening to some of the refutations that this person had in a presentation to some of the pro-abortion justifications that people who supported abortion were bringing to her. And there was no such thing as common ground analogy question, uh, but there was a lot of, of like a brick wall between the two positions and, and really no common ground and really no uh, understanding to uh, trying to understand the other person's position. And when I when I was listening to that, I was thinking of if someone who supports abortion is listening and watching this episode or this this video, they're not going to change their mind. And if someone who's pro-life is watching this, they're not going to be equipped to know how to change someone else's mind. And so that's what we want to do. That's what we want to focus on. That's what we want to highlight, that you can, in fact, change someone's mind. You can have very meaningful conversations about the very controversial topic of abortion, so meaningful that people change their minds and lives have been saved because of the tactics that we have shared. And so uh, if you join us as a patron on patreon.com, you do get some pretty cool merch options. But even more than that, you join a movement in raising up effective ambassadors for preborn children. So do do consider that uh, and do consider joining us as a patron. Even more than that uh, as well, we do have a number of other series that we put out. One is the Humans of the Pro-Life Movement, where we highlight some of the unsung heroes, the voices for the voiceless who are standing up day in and day out or on a volunteer basis uh, and not doing it for the notoriety or anything like that. No one even knows that they're doing it for the most part, but standing up for the preborn. We want to hear their stories, hear the work that they're doing and some of the, the great my changes of mind that have happened and some of the, the lives that have been saved through that. So Humans of the Pro-Life Movement, check it out. And we have a monthly episode of The Pulse where we uh, round up important and interesting pro-life news from around the world. Uh, we share this abortion-related news from a pro-life perspective. We've talked about it before, the importance of sharing our own stories. We, we want to take this opportunity of sharing pro-life stories away from pro-abortion media, who has no concern with truth when it comes to this, uh, but a lot of slander and trying to make sure that everyone supports abortion. We want to take this away, provide pro-life commentary so that you know how to think about some of the issues that are happening in your own nation and around the world. So one, one point on that, if you... Uh, are, are living, you know, we're pretty focused on Canada and the United States because that's where we live and, and we, we live within that context. But if there is important news from around the world, perhaps in the country that you're living in and you think it would be important for us to discuss, do send it to us. We can't promise that we'll talk about it every single time, but send it to us and we'll consider uh, highlighting that on our next episode of The Pulse, which comes out at the beginning of every month. So go check that out. You, you can find those on your 
podcast catchers, but also on YouTube because we are filming those and you can watch us have the conversations. You can see Cam's magnificent beard, and that is something that you don't want to miss. So go check that out. Uh, don't forget to subscribe on YouTube and on your podcast catcher uh, and reach out to us with any questions or thoughts that you might have. Uh, you can do that through prolifeguys.com, through our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever you do your social media um, to reach out to us. We love hearing from you. Thank you again for tuning in, Cam. You have one, uh, you have one thought. I can see it on your face um, that you would like to share with our audience. Please do it, and then we'll wrap things up. Boom. Broken record, Cam Cote at the end here. Have some conversations. If you don't have them, then um, it's difficult for Peter and I to, to talk to people in your neck of the woods, wherever you may be. We desperately need more people who are being defenders of the defenseless. We absolutely need people like you, regardless of how qualified or, or competent you feel that you are. We need people to employ these different conversation strategies wherever they are, um, because you may be the only line of defense between that preborn child um, and their death. And the good Lord will bless you in that, in that um, effort. And, and I just want to invite and encourage you to consider doing so because you don't know who needs to hear this pro-life message. It might even be your pro-life friends, your pro-life family members, whoever they may be. You don't know if a difficult situation might um, cause them to, to teeter on the edge or whatever it may be. And so have the conversation with the people around you within your sphere of influence. Consider joining one of our volunteer activism teams. You can apply online at endthekilling.ca. Or um, you can also apply to be a part of our online action team where we are engaging people on different social media hubs. Um, to be able to um, engage with people in a meaningful way in the online forum, which is so important and often so difficult. So thank yeah. you, sir. And one more thing for me, Cam and I are speakers. We do go to high schools uh, and, and universities, and we do go to your, to, uh, to pro-life community groups and, and have presentations on some of these topics uh, that we have here. So if you want uh, us to do a presentation, do reach out to us. You can contact us through our website, prolifeguys.com. Thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. Go have those conversations. Encourage your pro-lifers, uh, the pro-lifers in your community to, to be bold in their convictions that pre-born children are losing their lives and that it's up to us to stand up and defend them and have conversations with those in your community and in your circles who support abortion so that they too can see the humanity of pre-born children and the inhumanity of abortion. Thank you again for tuning in, and we hope you tune in again next week. 